following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I'm certain that at some point in your life you've said, I hate that, right? Probably in light of a vegetable maybe that you were served by your parents or your spouse. Isn't that true, right? For me, it was, oh, what is that, eggplant. I'm like, ha, ah, just, just, I, I just, no, you know. So right now, men, would you shout out the hated vegetable? Ready, one, two, three. Broccoli. 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 Actually, I, I like broccoli. Uh, maybe it's that driver. And, you know, I used to think it was a certain kind of driver, you know, the Lexus driver or the Tesla driver, you know, that that feels like they own the road, right? No need for them to use a turn signal uh, because it's their road, you know? And no need for them to be polite or, uh, you know, when you drive in Hawaii, people actually stop and allow left turners to come, you know, come onto the road. We call it the aloha spirit. And, and now that I've been there quite a bit with my grandsons, you know, I'm driving around Southern California and I say, no aloha spirit here, you know? Just like, get out of my way or I gotta get you, you know? And I hate that. Interesting enough, uh, hate takes a little bit of a turn when it comes to people. Some of you students have experienced the hatred of other students, or uh, hopefully not the hatred of a teacher, um, but ultimately even employers and employees. But interesting, the Bible actually talks about kind of people hating Christians. In fact, why do people hate Christians? Jesus said it this way in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then he says in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all, by all because of my name. And some of you are going, I don't hate Christians. What's the big deal here? Well, maybe it's because you've never met a real Christian. <laughs> uh, interesting enough, because real Christians believe they own, they embrace truth that is actually really offensive to a lot of people on this world. Really offensive. Some think, well, maybe it's because they believe in creation, not evolution. Or maybe it's because they only have, you know, believe in that God created two sexes. Or, or a certain coming judgment. Or a literal physical hell is awaiting some. Or that, that people are sinful and, and, you know, at the core of their being and not good. It could be that. But the, really the core of the struggle is this. Are you ready? Christ is in charge. Christ is Lord. Every knee and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every knee. Interesting enough, that is offensive to people. When you say that no other religion on planet Earth is correct, only Christ is the way and the truth and the life, then people express their hatred. Christ alone is the one you will face. He will be the one who is your judge. He's the one that you will have to answer to for every aspect of your life. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. And that's what makes Christians hated worldwide. Because there is no exception. Christ teaches that you can't live any way you want, which is the mantra of our day. Just let me do what I want. What's the problem here? Christ teaches that you can't do your own thing. You can't actually live for yourself without suffering severe consequences in this life as well as eternal consequences. That's what Christ teaches. What is true 
is that when you do submit to Christ as Lord, by faith you put your hope in Him. In repentance you turn from your sin and seek to follow His way. When that happens, He offers you peace and love and abundant life, He says, and grace and real forgiveness for all your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Live without guilt have the resources to actually love and give to others, and deliverance from eternal suffering and hell for your sins. Now, that's a pretty big offer. You say, well, well, Chris, but I don't hate Christians, so I don't have to face any of that. Interesting enough, the truth is, you are going to die someday and face judgment. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And the statistics are alarming. Would you agree with me? One in every one person dies. Pretty high percentage, right? That's the bad news. Death is certain. The good news is you don't have to fear it. Our society right now is based on the fear of death. People's response to this pandemic was fear of death. That was the big deal. And this morning, you can be certain to pass through the door of death and know for a fact that you have an incredible eternity awaiting you. Know for a fact, you say, really? Yeah, God gave you a written contract, and it is found in the Bible in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have a Bible today, which I hope you do, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and also follow along in the outline that we gave you, and that will allow you to track with us through this incredible resurrection chapter. The entire chapter is about the resurrection. Now, if you've been with us for the last six years, you know that every Easter we've been working our way through this incredible chapter. And so, several years ago, we talked about the evidences of Christ's resurrection, verses 1 through 11, then the consequences of dying, a, <clears throat> denying a bodily resurrection in verses 12 to 19, <clears throat> the plan and incentives of the resurrection in 20 to 34, the description of our resurrection bodies, which was last year, verses 35 to 49, and now finishing the chapter verses 50 through 58 God through the apostle Paul guarantees the incredible certain future of your resurrection he guarantees it for his children if you are a born-again Christ-following Christian you are guaranteed this and this passage is actually so powerful that it has been put to music in such masterpieces as Handel's Messiah and Brahms Requiem and therefore, it is a celebration of a certainty that only true born-again believers actually enjoy. God literally writes an unbreakable contract for his own children. Now, you and I absolutely need this passage because some of you need to know, why is the world the way it is? And what is going to happen next? And what does it mean to be completely forgiven? And you need to meet your desperate intimate relationship with a God who wants a relationship with you and what awaits you after death if you surrender to Christ and what awaits you after death if you don't surrender to Christ and why Christians are so uniquely blessed. So follow with me in your outline. Number one in your outline, the certainty of change. What Paul affirms here is the certainty of change. And he says this in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now I say this, brethren, talking to Christians, that flesh and blood, that's what you are right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do it, nor does perishable, that's which is decaying and dying, inherit the imperishable, that which will last forever. Now, what is he saying here? God is reminding you that even though flesh and blood is great for earthly bodies, it's not suited for heaven. 
even Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, basically had to be transformed before he could then ascend into heaven. He had to be uh, transformed. He had to be resurrected. But why can't our human bodies go to heaven? Why? Because our human bodies are perishable, he says in verse 50 there, meaning they decay. And you know it's true. We scent our bodies because they what? They smell, right? Some of you needed to do that this morning and didn't. That's sad. Um, We patch our bodies because they break. We stick Band-Aids on them, you know? I go to my skin doctor. He's cutting stuff off all the time, bandages all the time. We work out our bodies because they bulge. Uh, We paint our bodies because they discolor. All of it's signs of decay. And here's the point. There's no decay in heaven. There's no evidence of sin in heaven at all, ever. And even though every cell in our bodies is renewed every seven years, that doesn't prevent aging, it doesn't prevent deterioration or death, all of which is the result, the Bible says, because of sin. Because of sin. Our current bodies are not suited for eternity. They can't live in heaven. So he says, verse 50, look at it. He says, our perishable body can't inherit the imperishable or the internal. Our bodies must be made different in order to get to heaven, in order to inherit heaven. What Paul is implying here is true Christians certainly must and will be resurrected to life. Everyone's going to be resurrected, but resurrected to eternal life. Now, there's another point in this verse that you don't want to miss because he says, flesh and blood are not accepted by heaven. Not accepted by heaven. There's no way for us to be good enough to get to heaven. In our works, in our own strength, in our own... And you can be the nicest person on planet Earth. You can say nice things to people all the time. You can give most of your income away to others. And that is not going to make you acceptable to God because you're a sinner. That's right. In fact, nothing that wins the approval of men has any value before God. I mean, maybe you won the Nobel Prize. Maybe you built a business and employed a lot of people. Maybe you got athletic trophies and academic degrees, and you're really, really nice to people. You attend church most of the time. You, you claim you're a Christian. None of those impress God. None of them. That's frightening. Flesh and blood can't do anything of value under God's rule. Look what he says in verse 50 there. You cannot inherit the kingdom. You can't inherit the kingdom. That's what shocked the great Nicodemus. Remember that story in John chapter 3? He is the most respected spiritual leader in Israel. He comes to Jesus at night, which is, by the way, where we got the phrase, Nick at night comes from, okay? And Jesus said to him, he said, Nicodemus, you must be, what? Born again. You must be, you can't do it. Nicodemus, you're the most godly guy in all of Israel. You can't make it to heaven. You've got to be born again. That freaked him out. That's also what Paul is saying here. By nature, naturally, flesh and blood, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be a part of God's kingdom. You cannot go to heaven. There must be a change from the perishable to the imperishable. You must be made new. Now, that needs to happen in this life internally, And then eventually after death or a special event, externally. So internally it's got to happen, and then at the moment of your resurrection, externally. And as a Christian, you will be changed after you die. But what happens if you're alive? 
What happens if Jesus comes while we're all sitting here this morning? What's going to happen? Will we miss out on this incredible blessing? That's what the Corinthians are asking. So Paul says no. 1 Corinthians 15 guarantees, number two in your outline, the certainty of the rapture. The rapture. Read God's contract carefully in verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a what? A mystery. Mysteries are secrets. What didn't we know in the Old Testament that now this mystery has been revealed in the New Testament? What didn't they tell us? Well, wait. You say, well, it was the resurrection. No. He actually tells us about the resurrection in Job 19 and in Daniel 12. So we know about the resurrection. So what is it that is the mystery that's been revealed here? Well, he says, verse 51, take a look at it. Just read on. We shall not all what? Sleep. Now, that's a New Testament reference for die. Not, what he's saying here, every Christian is going to die. That's what he's saying. But we shall be what? Changed. Paul's describing a rapture. Now, what is the rapture? Let me give you the big picture, okay? When Jesus was on planet Earth, repeatedly he taught us that he was coming again. There's a moment time in the future when every religion on this planet is going to see Christ descending from heaven and they're going to go, oh no, we, we made the wrong decision here. Because there's only one way to be right with God, and that's through Christ. And when he returns, he's going to return in all his glory. Now, what does that mean, in all his glory? It means when he was walking among us through the Gospels and during his ministry in the New Testament, basically he was veiled. His deity was veiled in his humanity. So we didn't see him as God, except one time on the Mount of Transfiguration when that veil was removed, remember? And they all went, I mean, they didn't know how to respond. They were blown away that Christ was so glorious, and they, couldn't, they just almost couldn't embrace it. It was so awestruck. And interesting enough, that's the only time that happened, but when he comes again, when he comes in all his glory, it is going to be no question that this is God who was incarnate, God who is the God-man, fully God, fully man, coming now to rule this planet. And when he comes, he will come in all his glory But as he comes, he's wrapping up a judgment that has been poured out on this planet for seven years. So there's going to be seven years of judgment, then he comes in all his glory. That seven-year period is called the promised tribulation. It is seven years long of increasing intense universal judgments that will fall upon the entire world. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation, God's judgment will culminate in a horrific war called Armageddon. Armageddon, you've heard of it. This ongoing war has its final battles in Israel in the giant valley. Listen, the name of the valley is Megiddo. Ar-Megiddo, from Megiddo, in Megiddo. It's basically where Armageddon comes from. It is the valley of Megiddo. This massive, by the way, Israel's largest air force base is underground in the center of Megiddo. Largest one. In fact, planes come out flying out from underneath the ground. It's an amazing thing. Friends, understand, if these events are shaping up to occur in the next one to two years or even ten years, then what you'd see on the world stage right now, right now, what you would see, I know this is really hard for you to imagine this, an aggressive Russia and an aggressive China against a coalition of nations opposed to their movements. Hmm... 
And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it tells us the Battle of Armageddon is basically Russia and China warring against a coalition of nations led by the Antichrist. In the middle of that battle, Christ will return in his glory. The nations will turn their weapons against him as he's descending. Christ will speak a word and wipe them out, and then he will establish a literal thousand-year reign. So you're going to have seven years of judgment followed by a thousand years of Christ reigning on this planet. But what begins that seven-year judgment? The tribulation. What begins it? Well, what starts this worldwide panic is the rapture. What happens is, is this shocking to you? That Christ will snatch his followers away. Now, do you think the world will be scared when all the Christians disappear? Do you think they'll be afraid? You know what they're going to say? I'm going to tell you right now. If you're left here, this is what they'll say. So you'll know, okay? They're going to say aliens took them. Or they're going to say they were taken away in judgment. Okay, we finally got rid of all those horrible conservatives. You can't even imagine that happening in our news today, right? Right? We got rid of these people who, you know, think this way and they think absolutes and they think about morality. And finally, God said, enough is enough, and he took them away. That's what they're going to say. So that's happening. Interesting enough. And then the word rapture there will occur before this most intense time of judgment he will then caught up. The word rapture means caught up or seize. So when Paul says in verse 51, we shall not all sleep or die, that's a New Testament phrase for die, but we shall all be raised or resurrected or changed. That's Christ snatching away all genuine Christians in the rapture before the tribulation. So Christians who have died will be resurrected. Then those who are alive like us today will not die, but will be caught up instantly snatched up to meet the Lord in the air to be with him forever. And there's not a Christian in this room that can't wait and wants to be a part of that, right? Well, I mean, not, not that we're afraid of death, but man, wouldn't it be snappy to just be a part of the rapture? I mean, it's pretty neat. You know, and on the way up, we're going, you were wrong. Okay, so, yeah. Christians, sorry. Christians who have died will be resurrected. Christians. And then those who are alive, like us today, will not die, but they'll be caught up or snatched up, meet with the Lord in the air, changed to be with him forever. Every Christian will not die. Not every Christian will die. Verse 51, we shall not all die, sleep, but we shall be changed. Changed. The secret that God kept during the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament, as current believers will be translated up to heaven without dying. That's the rapture. All believers will be changed. All believers will be transformed into a glorified body, but not all of those believers will die. Some of them will just instantly go and be with the Lord. How will it happen? You say, how's this going to happen? Look at verse 52. You've got to understand, this is what this text is telling us. And he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be first and will be raised imperishable and we the living will be changed, will be changed. The rapture will be fast. In the twinkling of an eye, that's the time that takes for light to go to the front of the eyeball, to the back of the retina, kind of a twinkle there. It happens that fast. Interesting enough, it's faster than a blink. So right now, I'm going to ask you all, at the count of three, one, two, three, then blink. All right, are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three, blink. That's the rapture. Who's going to be left? Look at your neighbor. Say, will it be you? Okay? <laughs> Understand that's what's going to happen. Every eye will see him when he returns in all glory at the end of the tribulation. But at the beginning of the tribulation, what starts the tribulation, it's that he snatches his children away in a blink. Just that fast. 
Verse 52 says the trumpet will sound. That's God summoning his people to himself. What happens to genuine believers at the rapture? Look at verse 53 in your Bible. It says, for this perishable, decaying body must put on the imperishable, the non-decaying perfect body, and this mortal, this regular body, must put on immortality. It will be a body which cannot die, cannot age, and cannot wear out. Anybody excited about that? Yeah, okay, you should be. What are we going to be changed into? What kind of bodies are we going to have? Now, that was last Easter. We described all that in 1 Corinthians 15. And then also the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and also in 1 John 3 what exactly our bodies are going to be like. And it says that our bodies, our resurrected, glorified bodies, different than what they are right now, are going to be like Christ's body. That's what he says. You say, well, what is Christ's body like? I'm so glad you asked. He could appear and disappear at random as well as go through walls. That'll be nice. He could eat honeycomb and show the disciples the scars he had on his hands and feet. So there was some similarity to what he was. He stood on a mountain and just took off into space. That'll help ladies with shopping, don't you think? No need for a parking spot. He stood on the mountain, just took off. He, he could transport himself by a thought. Think Hawaii and you're there. Come Lord Jesus, you know, okay? He'll come in the same body he left in almost 2,000 years. It's going to last forever In other words, at the resurrection and at the rapture, Christians will have a spiritual, perfect, physical, powerful, glorified, incorruptible body. Do you sometimes, again, wake up in the morning and you go, ah, anybody, anybody? Or you go like, man, that hurts. None of that. No more decay, no more pain, nothing. Everything works all the time exactly as it's supposed to work. Even your taste buds. Some of you have COVID. I lost my, I can't taste anything anymore. Listen. Everything will be perfect. Can you imagine being with these people, but they'll all be perfect. Perfect. They'll never lose their patience. They'll never, you know, be edgy. Uh, They'll they'll never lie. They'll always be kind and great and perfect. Perfect. The New Testament clearly teaches there will be a rapture. Look what he says in John 14, 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God again, and the dead in Christ, those who already died, Christians, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, new glorified bodies, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. Why do Christians celebrate Easter? Why are we so excited about this wonderful Lord's Day celebration where we remember his resurrection? One of the many reasons is the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. It guarantees it. In fact, just as Christ received a new glorified body, you and I will receive a new glorified body. Death for the born-again Christian means that they're immediately at home with Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be what? Home with the Lord. The moment you die, your immaterial person goes directly into the presence of Christ. We are physical and spiritual, so our spiritual part leaves. That's the separation. That's called death. Okay, and then in the resurrection, you're joined with a new glorified body and to live with him forever. So if you die, your body will sleep until the rapture. When the rapture occurs, all those who have died in Christ will be reunited with a new 
glorified body. You say, oh, I got to make sure I get buried, or I got to make sure my organs, or I got to make sure. Yeah, listen, is God big enough to put you back together? Come on, don't, don't get freaking out over that, all right? You know, your organs and somebody else, will that be raptured? They better be a Christian, you know, kind of thing. Understand, weird thinking, all right? All those who've died in Christ will be reunited with a new glorified body, and then those in Christ who are alive will receive a new glorified body as they're snatched away. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you're to comfort one another. Why? Some of you have Christian parents, dear Christian friends, maybe even a spouse who died, and you need to be comforted by the fact that you will see them again if they're in Christ. And some of you are getting old. You hurt. Maybe you're young and you experience a lot of pain or damage or, or cancer or dying. That is not forever. That comfort yourselves. Comfort each other. In Christ, you are promised you will be freed with a new, eternal, glorified body. Listen, eternal means forever. That body will last forever, just like Christ did. Now, when is the rapture? Are you ready for the date? The moment I give one, you know that's not the date, okay? We don't know when it's going to be, but we do have indicators in the Scripture as to when it might occur. So let me give you a little hint from Matthew chapter 24 and 25 when he gives us signs or indicators of when the rapture is going to happen, all right? Uh, they're not on your outline. You're just going to have to work with me on this, okay? So Matthew 24 and 25 Give us indicators. Some of the indicators, are you ready? That Israel is back in the land. Hmm, is Israel back in the land? Yeah. Deception will saturate our world on every front. Is that true today? Uh, what about dissension escalating with wars and rumors of wars? Any of that going on? How about this idea of the increase of three things? Famine, pestilence, and earthquakes are going to increase before he comes. Famine, more people today are facing the scarcity and uncertainty of food than ever before. Pestilence, are we as a world facing worldwide disease outbreaks? Hmm? Hmm. How about earthquakes? Get this stat. This is true. You can look this up yourself. Between 1900 and 1969, there were six major earthquakes, six major ones every 10 years. Right now, from this day forward, there are major earthquakes, one every month in the world, every month. And then Jesus also teaches that persecution will increase. Are we being persecuted today? Christianity is under attack in the USA. Pastors are being arrested in Canada. Uh, understand, more than 340 million Christians live under high levels of persecution uh, last year, 4,761 uh, 4, believers were martyred last year. 4,488 churches were attacked last year. And 4,277 Christians were detained without trial. We are getting close, my friends. We are. So understand, Paul says, don't be discouraged. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and understand, not only will we be changed and if alive, raptured, but we will also most certainly, and this is a voice of victory, number three in your outline, the certainty of triumph. The certainty of triumph. And what Paul is celebrating here is what Christ did in his death on Good Friday, his resurrection from the dead that we celebrate today. And verse 54, but when, he says, this perishable, 
will have put on imperishable, and this mortal have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now what's he saying there? The resurrection of Jesus Christ has basically destroyed and broken the power of death. But death is still an enemy for us all, right? To some degree. Even for Christians, death violates your oversight of creation. It violates your most intimate relationships. I mean, obviously, if you know my wife or I die, then we're separated from our sweethearts. Uh, it, death disrupts families, uh, kids, grandkids, relatives. Uh, death causes grief in the absence of brothers and sisters that we love. Uh, so understand, we're no longer needing to fear death, but death still torments us, right? There are times when I'm in the hospital, the death of a saint, and and, and though we're rejoicing that they're with the Lord, we're grieving with the family at the loss of this person. It's still a painful, painful thing. Death still torments us while we're still mortal. But one day when Christ returns, look at verse 54, look at that verse, the perishable will put on, and then putting on is like clothes. The perishable is going to put on clothes of imperishability. And the mortal will put on like clothes immortality. Everyone will then be in a perfect state. No more sin. And just as the prophet Isaiah predicted, there will come a great triumph when death is swallowed up by victory. You know what he's saying there? What he's saying there, celebrate this, there'll be no more death. No more death. No more dying. No more sorrow. No more separation. None. You won't have to say goodbye. And then he says, he quotes Hosea in chapter 13, verse 14, Paul taunts death here in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death for our culture is a foreign item. You lived 100 years ago. You were basically repairing the body for burial. You've got your dad on the dining room table in the farm. You're washing the body. You're putting it into the casket. You're just tied in to everything that's happening. That's not today. We are more separated from death than any other culture. We don't even have an understanding of it, and yet death has a sting. What is that sting? The sting of death is what it brings about, that God the Holy Spirit planted in every single person in this room an awareness that we're going to have to give answer for our lives, an awareness that we have to give answer to a holy God for our lives. That's the sting of death. That's the fear of death. I have to answer for what I've done in my life. And the Bible tells us that actually the Spirit of God puts that in you. You know this is coming. You will stand before God and have to give an answer. Now, anybody ever been stung by a bee? Anybody? Okay, my wife and I, when we go wash on, walk on the beach, and if she goes barefoot, for sure, she's going to find the bee, and the bee's going to find her. She's going to get stung. It happens every time. Uh, some of you play baseball on a field barefoot. You know, you're getting stung all the time. It just happens. That's part of what we are. Listen, Jesus took the sting of death, and that stinger remains in him. He took it upon himself, which meant all the consequences of death, the sin that brought about death, all falls on him. So we don't have to live in fear anymore of death because he bore all the sting of death. That all the answering that we have to give to God has been answered by Jesus Christ. Are you with me on this? Listen, you're saying, when I stand before God, I don't have to say, well, I was a scuzz here and I yelled at my wife here and I was rotten to my kids here and I, I, I should have you know, acted with a different attitude at work here and you've got all these things. God took all of that upon himself. He took the sting of death on himself. All your sins, past, 
present, and future fell on Christ if you're a Christian. All of them. All of them. You mean the ones I'm going to do today? Yeah. Well, then I can live any way I like. No, 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 no. Okay. No, we're under grace, but he's given you a heart that wants to obey and understand if you admit that you're a sinner, if you put your trust that Christ has bore your sin and died for your sin, and by the way, get it, he took all the punishment, all the holy wrath from the Father upon himself on the cross, and you believe that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and is the only way to be made right with God, no other way, following him as your Lord and Master and Savior, then you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven, you can be made new and ready for heaven. Listen, do you deserve it? Yes or no? Oh, come on, say it. Do you deserve it? Yes or no? I don't deserve it. Not one lick. But he did that for me. Past, present, and future. And he died for my sin. And understand, in order for you to not miss the point, look at verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin. It's sin. The harm in death is caused by sin. In fact, Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, the fall of Adam and Eve, and death through sin, that's when death occurred. So death spread to all men because all sin. Everyone here is under condemnation unless we're in Christ. Only where there is sin can death deal a fatal eternal blow. But when sin is removed, when, when death can only interrupt this earthly life in order to usher us into eternal life. When sin is gone, when sin is dealt with, that separation between you and God, death doesn't lead to punishment, it leads to paradise. When sin is paid for, death doesn't lead to judgment, it leads to Jesus. Uh, when, when Christ takes your punishment, then death doesn't lead to hell, it leads to heaven. That's what he's saying. You, you can't do it because you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. Nobody can do it for you. But Christ is perfect. He's the perfect substitute. Your sin is judged on the cross so his righteousness can cover you. Are you getting it? The sting is your sin falls on Christ, is punished there. The Father punishes your sin on Christ, on the cross. Then if you put your hope there, he can cover you in his righteousness, which is the only way that you can stand in the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect God. You're not going to make it to heaven if you bring your, your old body with you. And you're not going to make it to heaven if you have any sin that's not been dealt with. You cannot stand in his presence. But you can if you're in Christ. And that's what Jesus did for his children by dying for sin and then rising from the dead on Easter. Our sins can be forgiven if we're in Christ. Death is not gone, but the sting is sin. That's gone. That's dealt with. He took our sins. He took our sting. And therefore, all true Christians are forgiven. We're guilt-free. And we're ready for heaven. It's not that Christians no longer sin, but that the sins that we commit are already covered by Christ's atoning death, paid in full. And sin's effect is not permanently fatal. But if you don't surrender to Christ, if you don't seek to obey him from the heart, if you don't follow him by faith, then death's sting tragically remains in you forever. Forever. And God wants to make sure you get it. So what's he say in verse 56? Take a look at it. The power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. Well, what's he saying there? The law. Well, how many of you, if you would willingly admit this and raise your hand, 
How many of you have ever lied in your lifetime? Can I see your hands? Whoa, wow, look at that, a bunch of liars. How many have stolen? Anybody stolen? Want to admit that? Okay, some people aren't raising their hand because they just don't want to admit that they're a thief. Okay? How many have lusted? Oh, the less hands go up with that? Okay, all right. Bunch of pervs. Okay, so <laughs> how many have been angry at somebody? Angry? Right? Come on, now less and less of people are raising their hands. How many have hurt someone with their words? Anybody? Wow. We know we're guilty. I'll be the first one to raise my hand on every one of those and a lot more. We know we're guilty. We have to answer for those sins. You and I have to answer to God for those sins. God's law, that's why he mentions it here. He says, the power of sin is the law. What he's saying is God's love reveals God's character, God's standards, um, God's morality. And so when you face that, you see your sin. And so when your eyes are opened, you're then drawn to surrender to Christ because you're overwhelmed by the judgment for your sin, the, what you've done and how you've harmed others with your sin or harmed yourself. And so you then say, Lord, you've got to rescue me. I, I can't rescue myself. I can't work my way out of this. And God's law is one showing us how much we've rebelled. God's law, the, God, the word of God, shows us our sin in our lives that must be judged by God. And that's the bad news. It shows us that we are condemned. So that's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, look at verse 57. He tells you. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, which we could never do for ourselves. We can't earn it. We can never be good enough. We can never be perfect. God has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter, we can't live sinlessly and there fulfill the law. Fulfill the law means keep all the laws. We can't keep all the laws. We haven't done it. Nor can we remove sin once we've committed it or remove the consequences, which is death. We can't do any of that. So we have to cry out to Christ because Christ lived a sinless life, absolutely perfect, while he lived on planet Earth in his entire existence. He fulfilled the law. He kept all of God's commands, all of them perfectly. He removed our sin by paying the penalty, by suffering the death that we deserve. He basically took all your eternal hell upon himself as God the Father poured out his wrath on his son, took all of that for you. The whole eternity that you deserve to be punished, he took all of that on the cross and then rose from the dead and satisfied God with a perfect sacrifice, conquered death by raising from the dead. How can we do anything other than thank him for what he did? That's what Paul is saying here. God promises a powerful spiritual body for one that is weak, decaying, and natural. He promises heaven in exchange for earth. He promises immortality in exchange for mortality. And we know these promises are true because he's already given us the victory of sin now. In fact, when he says giving us the victory, that's present tense. It's, look at it, it says, verse 57, who gave us the victory, that's ongoing. That's not talking about the past victory. He's saying thanks be to God who keeps on giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's telling you there, Christian, is that every day as a Christian, you and I are renewed by the grace of God. Do you not feel that? Do you not sense that? Sometimes you sin the day before you go, Lord, I am thankful for your grace. Anybody say that? Sure you are. And that's what he's saying is, is that Jesus is alive. I meet with him every day. But when I find myself sinning or struggling or faltering, I can receive from him the cleansing he won for me at Calvary. In other words, my sins are washed away afresh. I find new power to say no to evil, to stand firm in the struggles of life, 
because he keeps giving us the victory. It's present tense. Keep giving us the victory. Thanks be to God he gives you the victory over the penalty of sin, eternal life, eternal death. He saved us from eternal death and given us eternal life. He can give you the victory over the power of sin in your current sin battles. He gave you the penalty, freed you from that, and he gives you the power of your current sin battles you face every day. And because he did all of this for you, because he gave you and guaranteed all these things for you, he tells you now you're part of the contract, point number four in your outline, which is the last verse, the certainty of service. The certainty of service. You're part of the contract. The conclusion, the only right response is verse 58. Take a look at it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast. And then be what? immovable, and then always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If you really believe that you're truly thankful that your resurrection or rapture is certain, that you will be changed from a perishable, dishonorable, weak, mortal, and earthly body and life to an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, immortal, and heavenly body and life, Paul says, prove it. Verse 58 is prove it. Prove your confidence, prove your thankfulness by never giving up and overflowing in service to Christ. I didn't write it, Christ did, through the Apostle Paul. Steadfast. You know what steadfast means? You ever had a kid, or maybe you did this wives to your husbands or whatever, I'm in the chair and I'm not moving, all right? You can't get me out of this chair. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you have done this. That's what steadfast means. It actually means to be seated and you're not going to move. You're not going to move. The only way you're going to move is the whole chair has got to go with you, right? That's what he's talking about here. He's basically saying, I am firmly planted in my faith. I'm not going to allow anything to discourage me from my service. I am steadfast. How many of you are easily swayed from your commitments? How much can you take before you bail out? What does it take to discourage you? Immature Christians bail out quick. Mature Christians are steadfast. They just keep hanging in there. And then to make sure that he really makes sure you got it, he says, be immovable. Be immovable, totally motionless. You can't be pushed over. You're a fixture that cannot be tipped over. There's no discussion, no question. You're not going, oh, I don't know if this is true. You're going, no, it's true. I'm taking my stand. I'm not debating God's word. I'm just obeying God's word. I'm not debating it, I'm just obeying. Is that you? Are you immovable to God's word? In fact, the last word, he says, not only immovable, not only steadfast, but you're abounding. Write this down. Abounding means to exceed the requirements. Abounding means to overdo it. Overdo it. What a statement to the countless Christians today in our culture who serve, give, pray, attend, and suffer as little as possible. Just enough to kind of feel spiritual, just enough to kind of have a relationship that they could claim to know Christ. But how can we take it easy when God has accomplished so much for us, did all this that we didn't deserve, did what we could never do for ourselves, and how can we do this with so many dead around us who are dead spiritually and so many other believers who need encouragement and edification and teaching and help of every sort? Rest is overdone in our culture. Would you agree with that? We're constantly, we're, they're talking about a four-day work week. What is that? Relaxation, leisure are the idols of today. I'm not saying that's not good. Rest is good. It's good to have a day off. But understand, if Christ saved you, 
promised you resurrection, promised you rapture and eternity, don't be reaching for the bench, Paul says. Well, I didn't say it, Paul said it. Don't relax yourself and out of the work of God, abound, overdo it. Show a little, yeah, that's right, cry about it, go for it. The rapture is any moment, any moment. Exceed the requirements, abound for Christ. Don't just give him a little, oh, here's a little toss-up for you, Jesus. Serve him, love him. There are souls to reach, ministries of every kind to be accomplished, service to do, resources to give. Live every single day as if it were your last. Will it be easy? Look what he says, verse 58. Knowing that your toil will not be in vain in the Lord. Service, ministry, efforts for Christ are toil. Write down this definition. Toil means labor to the point of exhaustion. That's what he's saying. Your labor to the point of exhaustion will not be in vain. Whatever you do, what God has called you to do, if God's provided you and gifted you to do certain things, then whatever he's gifted you to do, called you to do, that God's work done God's way will never lack for God's strength. He's going to strengthen you through it. You're going to see him work in marvelous ways that you could even imagine. But will it count for eternity? God says strength will be yours Power will be yours, and God says your toil will not be in vain. Everything we do for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit will count for eternity. It will not be in vain. The Lord says in Hebrews 6, he will not forget what you've done for him. God promises your tiring labor when you get exhausted and serving for Christ is not in vain. It will matter for eternity, and God will reward you forever. Is our future life better than this life? Yes or no? Then live like it. Live like it. If your future life is better than this life, understand, that's what he's talking about. God promises your tiring labor will not be in vain. Are you ready? Here it comes. He is risen. You answer? He is risen indeed. Are you ready for the rapture? And are you certain that you will be raised? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would do your work in our midst, that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would make us into the men and women you want us to be. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified with how we respond to your word. We pray that we would honor you in the way that we live, in the way that we serve. And we pray, Father, too, that those in our midst who might not know you, who might be deceived, who might be thinking themselves a Christian and not a Christian, we pray that you would work in their hearts and work in their lives so that they would end up turning to you, that you would awaken them so they could then surrender to you. Father, help those who think they belong to you but don't obey you and some who say and call themselves Christians, but they don't want to please you first. Some who attend church, and, but they don't serve, they don't give, they don't fellowship with your people, they don't make disciples, they don't share the gospel, they don't pray, they don't sacrifice to others. Father, help them to see the emptiness of that kind of religiosity. Help them to see their desperate need. Father, help them to not just like the idea of heaven or a rapture, but to be anxious to get there. That not just that they like Jesus, but they're willing to do whatever he wants and die to themselves and be his slave and admit 
that you died for their sin, that you rose from the dead, you ascended to heaven, and that now we are to follow you, not in our own strength, but empowered by you, by your spirit, by a new heart that wants to follow you. And again, for the rest of us who know you, we pray that our hearts would be looking for you every day and rejoicing on the certain future that we have that you guaranteed with a salvation that was accomplished by Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.